The lion banner sways and falls in the horror-haunted gloom. A scarlet dragon rustles by, borne on winds of doom. In heaps the shining horsemen lie, where the thrusting lances break. And deep in the haunted mountains, the lost black gods awake. Dead hands grope in the shadows, the stars turn pale with fright. For this is the dragon's hour, the triumph of fear and night. And this is the One Last Sketch Podcast, a show dedicated to science fiction, fantasy, and history. This is episode 33, We Are All Barbarians Now, because we are talking about Robert E. Howard's Conan! I love your enthusiasm. Does not seem to be shared. I love Conan. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm your host, Michael. I'm Marie, and I'm Corey. We're specifically talking about the one novel written by Robert E. Howard in the Conan saga. Because we couldn't get Corey to read any of the rest. <laughs> There's too much. <laughs> I read all the rest. You read all the rest entirely on your own volition. It had nothing to do with this podcast, which is what I want to get into first. <laughs> Because people are going to ask, why are we doing a Conan podcast? And how did you convince somebody else to read this? <laughs> Alright, Conan, because of your infectious enthusiasm, where you constantly talk about Conan. Constantly. I constantly talk about it because this is one of those things that I really got into as a teenager. Yeah, whenever we'd be talking about our childhood, like, whatever, wherever we'd start, like video games or social things eventually conan comes up for michael so i was like well this I read s- yeah, yeah i read so much of this guy robert e howard and bought so many of his books when i was 17 between the age of 17 and 19 i think is where most of my collection comes from and that was another friend's fault at the time because he was really into 60s fantasy sword and sorcery stuff. And he's like, where did this all come from? Oh, well, Robert E. Howard was the first guy who wrote this kind of fantasy. So I need to track down all the books. And that's what he did. And he lent some to me. And then I ended up tracking down a bunch of books. And we both became collectors of this stuff. Yeah, there was one thing I definitely noticed reading this is I, I could very much see the influence on a lot of later authors. Um, even some you wouldn't necessarily expect. Like, I could find elements of Ursula K. Le Guin in this, weird as that may sound. Or I could see how she would be influenced by it. Even if it may have been to go the complete opposite direction of what Howard was doing, you can kind of still see the elements and the influence there. I think there's a lot of indirect influence that just kind of spreads out like a spider web, where it doesn't necessarily mean the authors actually read this guy, mm-hmm. but because they read other authors who did, mm-hmm. and his uh, influence on the field is so great that it ends up spreading just to every nook and cranny mm-hmm. that you look at. Well, you can definitely tell that he kind of was one of the founding authors of this kind of storytelling. Like, there's so many things that happen where they're cliches, but they're written in such a way where he's very clearly the one starting the cliche as opposed to taking up something else that had been done. 
i.e. the wisp of silk. But anyway. (laughs) Maybe not necessarily. It's cliches for this, putting this into a fantasy setting, because the influences on him are manifold (laughs) and come from many areas. A lot of 19th century adventure fiction, obviously, (laughs) went into this. It's just now we have magic instead of it being in a historical setting. Mm-hmm. But I guess we sh- now that we've been talking about the history and influence of this, we should go a little bit into the history behind the man himself and where these stories came from. Uh, Robert E. Howard lived in the 1930s, didn't live very long, mm. uh, killed himself in his early 30s, and he basically published his first story when he was 19, but then didn't publish another one until 24. Mm-hmm. So it was not a very large span of time that he was writing, but he was extremely prolific within that time period. Mm -hmm. So he wrote a lot of stories. Like, I can't even catalog how many collections are available of his stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you wanted to read everything, it would take a really long time. Mm-hmm. Most of these sto- most of these were short stories. He only wrote two novels, or at least two novels that were published, and most of the stuff was published in Weird Tales, yep. which was a magazine specializing in the fantastic, just it, a catch-all term, Weird Tales. It was anything that seemed weird at the time he yep. published in there. And he was one of the three big authors... Mm-hmm. of the thir- 20s and 30s in that magazine, the other two being H.P. Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith. H.P. Lovecraft equally, m- I would say, more influential than Robert E. Howard mm-hmm. because he... Robert E. Howard is very much in fantasy. I think Lovecraft spread out far beyond yeah. that into popular culture. Well, and just mm-hmm. Lovecraft everywhere. did... Yeah, Lovecraft did science fiction, fantasy, horror. Um, so just a, a lot of different ways he could have influence. Whereas, like you said, Howard seems to have stuck predominantly to fantasy, if not exclusively. But, uh, and westerns and historical fiction, too. Yeah. Which would be in different magazines, but not... His influence in those areas wasn't nearly as much. Clark Ashton Smith is mostly forgotten, even though... For me, arguably, he was the best writer of the three. With H.P. Lovecraft? as prolific as the other two. H.P. Lovecraft being the, the worst. At the bottom. <laughs> at the bottom. Yeah. Now, Lovecraft <laughs> had some interesting ideas, but just on a purely writing mechanic level, he can be tedious to read. He's just not very good at it. But, yeah. So, Conan comes about mainly as Robert E. Howard assessed his audience in Weird Tales. What stories of his... Mm-hmm. We're getting the most fan mail and getting published, which ones were getting the cover, mm-hmm. which was the main important thing was getting that all important cover illustration because <laughs> yes. you get more money for that if you got the cover. Yeah. Uh, and he took all those elements and said, took other stories, rewrote them, made mm. this new character. Conan will be my, my big deal. He'll be my breakout character. And he, he really was. Yeah, literally, often. <laughs> often. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're mainly talking about the Hour of the Dragon, which chronologically comes last in these stories, but I think it's a good pick to start out with because this was... He wrote this because British publishers approached him to say, we want to publish some Conan in England, mm-hmm. but we don't want to publish short story collections. We want a novel. He wanted to introduce the British audience to the characters, so he took basically everything 
yep. that happened in the previous stories and poured them into one word. It's like, here's, it's basically the greatest hit CD, is what Nara's exactly. Dragon is, because it's like, I've read all of these already. Yeah, no, I, I definitely got that sense reading it, because it, it's constantly referencing past things in his life, and you can just tell that these are completely different stories that actually exist. Yep. Like, he'll be talking about when he was a Corsair, or when he was roaming the deserts, or when he was doing this, or when he was doing that. It's like, okay, this is just you kind of advertising your own stories in yep. a story. Yep. <laughs> and it's uh, great, because it's like, wow, no person would have been capable of doing all of these things. But it doesn't matter, because it's Conan, so he is capable of doing all Co- these things. Conan, I found, in Hour of the Dragon at least, alternates between being this, like, superhuman Nietzschean Superman, and the biggest klutz on the planet. Well, yeah, because you have like, to have just, ability or else nothing happens. Well, that's the thing. It's like, you, you can't have the villains beat Conan because he's, like, so awesome that no one can stand against him. So you've got to find a way for him to kind of get, in quotes, defeated to add drama and tension. And that usually comes about from him, like, slipping or his horse falling or he takes a random knock on the head. Like, yeah. <sighs> yeah. Well, unlike other heroes, he does get the crap beat out of him. He does. At some point or another. Yep, he does take his knock. He does maintain bruises, but he knits together pretty well. But before we kind of get into the story too much itself, wasn't the uh, the Phoenix and the Sword the first one? Uh, there was a group of three that he sent off to Weird Tales first. Mm-hmm. And the Phoenix and the Sword was one of them, and the Tower of the Elephant was another one. Oh, yeah. So those are kind of conk concurrent as mm-hmm. the short story introductions to the character. Yeah, which is funny because he's already the king of Aquilonia in The Phoenix and the Sword. And <laughs> The is... Phoenix and the Sword is a straight rewrite of an earlier Cole the Conqueror story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Called By This Axe I Rule. <laughs> gives you the pattern of Robert E. Howard's titles yeah. for these things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So before we do begin going into this stuff, it's important to note that Hour of the Dragon, initially when it was published as a novel version, because it didn't get published in England, mm. that was the big disappointment, and ended up being serialized in Weird Tales. When it <laughs> came out next, it was boulderized as Conan the Conqueror. Ah. So I have the... The authorized uh, Berkeley editions edited by Carl Edward Wagner, which are unedited, and I think you read the unedited versions as well. Presumably, yeah. It's the centenary edition, the Complete Chronicles of Conan, so probably unedited. Because most of what I have and what I read as a teenager is the Lancer editions, which are all edited to one degree or another. <laughs> so are, what are they edited for? For length or for content? Content and okay. consistency in some cases. The editor was Elsprague de Camp, who uh, I think took more of a role, more of that role than he might have, should have mm. for those stories. So it's not entirely for content. It's some things where he's just like, this isn't written as well as I would have liked it to be, but Elsprague de Camp was not a great author, mm. so his edits don't end up making much of a difference, mm. and in many cases are make the, fra- the 
pace of the prose a little bit worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that was one thing. I, I'm pretty sure we read the unedited one then because I couldn't really fault the pacing of the prose. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was definitely there's some sloppiness for sure. There's a few parts where it's sloppy, and there's a few parts where it's very purple, but. It was never... When you compare it to H.P. Lovecraft, it's not purple at all. (laughs) Yeah, H.P. Lovecraft is so purple, it's a bruise, though. (laughs) It's a bruise on your psyche, as he probably intended. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as I talked about that ruling triad of weird tales before, they were all very different stylistically. Mm -hmm. Like, I think you can read Robert E. Howard now, and it reads very modern. Mm -hmm. And that might just be because the influence that it's having, but H.P. Lovecraft does not read as something that can easily be replicated or mm-hmm. <laughs> something that sane people would write today. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, as far as Conan goes, like, again, I, the only other Robert E. Howard I read is you loaned me the Solomon Kane stories a few years ago. And his prose is fairly, fairly direct, fairly simple. Um, way too many adjectives, in that every word has to have an adjective, but he does seem to restrict it to one or two. It's not like you'll have five adjectives noun, it's just adjective noun. But the problem is every sentence is adjective noun. Yeah, you get used to it. You do get <laughs> used to it. But there's a few parts where it's like, does, do, like, do they ever just do things normally in this universe? Like, No. <laughs> no, everything is dramatic at every moment. Or sorry, is anything normal? Doing things normally would be adverbs. Yeah. Just because I do know how grammar works. I think you can tell when you're reading them that Robert E. Howard's style was apparently to say these things out loud as he was typing them. Mm, probably, yeah. I think it shows, yeah. Yeah, it, which is interesting because they don't necessarily read like oral stories so much as they read like somebody who... I guess the best way I can describe it is somebody who's memorized a script and they're giving a pitch and like that kind of the cliche figure of the guy outside of Coney Island who's constantly describing the horrors within the sideshow tent. Like there's kind of that element to it. I found. Yeah, because constantly Conan is great. That's the whole point of each story. He's the best. (laughs) So overall impressions right now just of the Hour of the Dragon, before we go into this. Well, it, it's really... Did you like it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, well, that was great. I didn't dislike it. <laughs> it, it I, I didn't think it was as great as YouTube, but by no means was it terrible. Like, I thought it was just a very mediocre read. It's probably because, though, I read it after reading everything else. So for me, it was more like Greatest Hits of Reprise than it was... Here's all of Conan all at once first experience. I think actually the other short stories are way better paced. <laughs> and it's less sort of frenetic. We're gonna go across the entire world chasing the MacGuffin for the thing to restore the thing. Yeah. <laughs> Conan's last hurrah. Yeah. Yeah, so when these came out in the 60s as those Lancer editions that I have, they were presented as Conan, the complete coherent saga, and they tried to have little bridging bits in between the stories and put it together this one long narrative of Conan and his life. It's just not physically uh, possible. Like, even for someone with Conan's stamina, like, it's just, it, it you just suspend the disbelief that this guy's been every place in, in the, um, 
Kyborian world. Well, the other thing, too, it's kind of unnecessary to do that. Like, I mean, again, I haven't read as many or any of the short stories the way you guys have, but, I mean, presumably there is kind of a sense of these are continuous adventures in one character's life. Like, I don't see why you'd need to tack this thing in to connect them. Well, like, there's various things where it's, like, mentioned like this was early in his career. This was after this thing had happened, but... It doesn't, like, coherently match up. It's not... I, it, I doubt Robert E. Howard ever made a timeline for Conan that was supposed to make any sense. He was just putting Conan in as many different places to tell a story so he could sell it. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's what was going on. <laughs> yeah, the publication order is all over the place with mm-hmm. where these stories take place mm-hmm. within this character's lifetime, and I find I don't approach it as one coherent whole... Because, no. yeah, there's some stories that are much better than others. Yeah, like, Red Nails so, is fantastic. Yeah, you kind of have yeah. a few of these stories I really like and will go back to, and then mm-hmm. a whole lot of stuff that's just bad, awful, more racist than usual, <laughs> yeah. that, that's more kind of... sexist than usual that you just kind of forget. And I the think Frost Giant there's a, <laughs> Yeah, there's another problem because... Because Howard died so young and his estate kind of went to somebody else to manage, every little scrap of what he wrote has been published, and definitely every scrap of Conan has been published, whether it was published in his lifetime or not, whether he finished it or not, whether he thought it was good enough to send to a publisher or not. Mm-hmm. So, like, The Frost Giant's Daughter was not published as a Conan story in his lifetime. That was just in a drawer somewhere. Well, that, that's which one of, kind which of is a good unf- thing, because it made me so mad when I read it. I, I think I ranted at you, and then, and then you yeah, were there's... busy defending him. I still don't forgive him for putting it to pen. I don't but... defend that story, no. <laughs> I'm just trying to say that it's kind of one of the unfortunate things of authors of this era, especially writing in this genre and style. Like This would have been Pulp Fiction, so it's the kind of thing where someone like Robert E. Howard was probably actually making his living off of these stories, because you could do it. The trade-off being, you had to be so prolific as to effectively sacrifice quality. Yeah, the other part being, this is a guy from Texas in the 1930s, mm-hmm. which I think shows to yeah. a certain degree. <laughs> oh, not not even to a certain degree. It's right up front. Um, wisp of silk. Just saying. <laughs> There's always a wisp of silk. Yeah. I had fewer issues with the sexism in these simply because, by proportion, there's way more racism yes. <laughs> that you tend to focus on it. There's more. usually only one woman present, yeah, so it's, like, it's not as bad, I guess. There's, there's like one woman, the scene she's in is horribly sexist, and then five scenes of just racism. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah there are various warnings going into reading pulp working class fiction from this time yeah. period. Uh, What's, what, like, I think uh, one thing that's, that's... It's not the sheer amount of disdain that you find in Lovecraft, per se, but uh, it's there. It's hard to defend well, it, Michael. You really can't. <laughs> it's one of those things, though, where I had a hard time... Like, with Lovecraft, the racism is very clearly Lovecraft, so that's easy to see. He was a racist bastard. Um, with Howard, I have a hard time separating. I can't tell if the racism is his... Or if it's him reflecting the society he's a part of. Now, obviously, neither of those are, is excusable, but it just... I, or extricable. Yeah. It's, no, just, it's column A and column B, Corey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like... I mean, yeah. Uh, 
I mean, I think one of the things that's almost makes it worse is because, like, the Stygians, who are the Egyptians, are the ones that, that, you know, house the evil sorcery, and they're usually evil masterminds. But people who are black in his stories are so sort of regressed that they're not even worth having an empire. They just immediately fall before Conan because of his obvious white superiority. It's kind of a... It's a, it's highly problematic. That's the, that's the difficult part about reading these. Because you're... For a little bit, it's a really great adventure story, and then all of a sudden there's just this dissonant piece, and you're just like, ugh. Solomon Kane did that too. Like, There's this weird hierarchy of for lack of a better term, skin tones in Howard, where if you're white, you're noble, you're pure, you're human. I mean, you can be a bad guy, but you're at least, you know, capable of intelligence. Whereas if you're slightly brown, you can be manipulative and awful, but maybe have some kind of, in quotes here, savage nobility. And if you're, like, overtly black, you're either too stupid to function and are an animal, or a pure evil. Like... From uh, as, as someone with, Solomon Kane had one good black guy in it. Yeah, but like as, that's as, not saying much. As well, someone with modern, useful woman. Yeah, as someone with modern sensibilities, like there is a certain appalling element to this for sure. Yeah, it's so you have to sort of if you want to read the fun parts, you have to sort of just plow through those bits and be like, Ugh, whatever. I didn't. It's it's even worse because it's not just the general zeitgeist of the time it's that thematically what howard was writing in these stories in particular and definitely in solomon kane is informed by very much by the anthropology of the previous decade because mm-hmm. he read a lot of it mm-hmm. and anthropology in the late 19th and early 20th centuries was overtly racist yeah and unlike somebody who would have been ignorant of those things or not included them in their stories, he was very much inter- very much interested in anthropology, mm-hmm. anthropological theory, and including that even in silly adventure stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's unavoidable at that point. Well, it's one of those yeah. things where, like Marie said, you can just kind of push through and get to the good parts. But I, I think you have to take this on some level as a relic of its time. Um, Shakespeare has racism and sexism and xenophobia in it. I mean, Chaucer does like all, I'm sure Blake does as well. I'm just not, or not Blake. Um, Paradise Lost. Milton. 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 Thank you. I'm sure Milton does. I just don't remember it well enough to pick up the specific More points. sexism in Milton. Yeah. yeah like it, it's one of those things where you can either, read older literature and just accept that certain things you disagree with are going to come up, or you can completely reject it all and stick purely to what's coming out now. But if you're doing that, that's that's living in a bubble. Like, why? I mean, as horrible as I found the sensibilities, I am glad I was exposed to this, if for no other reason than it, that it was a different type of story. And it's a lot of fun. And I just had to say for the feminist part, because I said I'd say it, from many times we talked about doing this podcast, that there are two strong female figures in Conan. Maybe a third one, now that I'm just thinking about it, but not particularly. Um, one of which does a mating dance as soon as she sees Conan fight, and so that sort of throws that away. And the other one who twists her ankle in the middle of a thing and then has to, you know, not fight. Yeah. So Yeah, that was Red Nails, yeah. which is the most disappointing part of Red Nails. It's like, seriously, you had a swashbuckler. How hard is this to screw up? 
<laughs> Again, I, I haven't read um, as the stories you guys are referencing, but like even in The Hour of the Dragon, the female characters are either vapid sex objects that need to be rescued or a wise old crone whose magic is there to aid Conan in his quest. Like, th- th- that's it. She's got a wolf. She's pretty cool. You don't see her for very long, it's, 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 it's those two character types. <laughs> yeah. And I shouldn't even say types, because there's only one example of the latter, mm-hmm. and about three of the former. Yep. Twist and that's so. not to say there are not better female characters in other stories. There are. You will not find them in Conan. Nope. You will not find them in Solomon Kane mm-hmm. because... There's barely any women in Solomon Kane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably won't find it in most of the Weird Tales material, mm-hmm. and yeah. that's largely because most of the Weird Tales material was of this stripe. And I mean, so I, I just read Conan from the point of view of like, okay, let's pretend we're in a universe where someone is this amazing that you just fall over for him, and then at this point, I'm like, fine, he's that great. Moving along. Which brings us well into our next topic, which is Conan as a character. Or Conan, I don't actually know what the proper way to pronounce this is. Usually people call him Conan, he was called that in the movies. Yeah, but I'd go with that. Where he's from, Camaria, is this takes place in Earth a long, 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 long time ago. Mm-hmm. Which is basically Camaria's Ireland and Scotland and the North Sea. Yeah. <laughs> The maps and Conan are great. is supposed to be a kind of Irish, yeah, uh, coolin kind of character. He's, he's also kind of the cool guy. The one bit that I really did enjoy was how, even though he's a barbarian, he's like you civilized people are weird. Even in, in that's bar- a in very long lands. running theme. Yeah. yeah, he's like even in, even even barbarians have like a sense of honor. You guys have none. So sort of he sort of had that no that noble savagery thing a little bit going on. Yeah, I mean, in many regards, he is um, he's just a modern continuation of a mythic tradition. Like Beowulf is the first example that comes to mind, right? Like just this, for lack of a better term, ultra masculine action hero. Mm-hmm. Effectively, um, it just happens to be that the setting is one that's intentionally made out to be more foreign to our kind of perceptions. But I mean, you still see this character type very commonly. Yeah, well, that explains why Arnold Schwarzenegger played him. <laughs> yeah, effectively, yes. like, he is yeah. the living embodiment of the barbarian spirit, which we see in so many video games yep. after the nineteen eighties. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. You know, um, Conan is a character I did actually find quite interesting. Um, mm-hmm. He is very compelling. He's designed to be compelling. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird. He is, he's very compelling, as Marie said. He's charismatic, despite being very kind of gruff and rough and, for lack of a better term, uncivilized. Like, he's got this weird charisma where people want to follow him. Um, he's not book smart, but he's not stupid. Mm-hmm. He is literate, apparently, which I found surprising, actually. In several languages, yeah. Yeah, somehow that happened. Yeah, time for that, too. It's just, <laughs> it, well, then it was just one of those things where, because of the type of character, I would not have expected him to be able to read and write, but he does. Yeah, he's a lot smarter than the popular conception of this character going in. Yeah. He, tell he... you. And I think we might <laughs> want to cover that a little bit, because yeah. I didn't have many preconceived notions about what this character was like when I read him as a teenager, but 
A lot of people do, mm-hmm. mostly informed by the films. Yeah, and I didn't think that he was going to be quite the master tactician kind of warlord, because I definitely thought that like in a one-on-one fight he was going to be strong, but I didn't see him as a person who would be like a brilliant strategist as well, and that's also a big part of his character. Yeah, like I, I thought In this be, novel, yeah. Yeah I, yeah, I thought he'd be a warlord <laughs> in the sense of he's just like a he's the toughest member of the barbarian tribe, not in terms of he's the one who can actually sort out the plans and logistics, but he, he can and he does. <laughs> well, it's this whole thing where he's supposed to come from this primal barbarian land where everyone's just better at doing things because they're barbarians. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they're better except, at reading too. <laughs> except the main thing with that here is that he left his homeland because it was boring and he didn't fit in there. Yeah. So he really is more awesome than the other barbarians, which is probably how he picks up all this other stuff. Yeah, see, he's got some innate glowiness constantly going on. So when you see him in this novel, he's not a barbaric warlord. He is king. He's maybe not a legitimate king, but he's... Legitimate enough that well, people it, are following him. Yeah, you, you the can, commoners like him. <laughs> you can very much tell this was written in the states, because um, the whole point of him being king is that he's king by popular assent, because he showed the people how to be free and rise up and overthrow their tyrannical overlord kings, and in doing so, he seized a kingdom and forged his own, you know, monas- or, um, dynasty and blah blah blah, and it's like. Wow, this is very Ayn Randian. <laughs> or Ayn Rand, however well, you say her name. The previous king was insane, which is how he was able to get people behind yeah. him. Yeah. But among other things, as King Conan espouses religious toleration and religious freedom... Because he's like, wow, I don't care. There's Krom. You can have whatever you like. <laughs> Basically. Krom does not give two shits about your gods, so it's, I guess whatever. <laughs> it is a weird thing where Conan's sensibilities, to some extent, not in all regards, but at least in one or two senses, are very modern. Um, again, his view on religion is he doesn't care as long as you're not hurting people, literally. like mm-hmm. It's like, as long as they're not causing trouble, I don't care who they worship. That that That's his summary of religion, or at least regarding his own subjects. And... He does things for the common people, like lowering their taxes and pre- ensuring they're actually protected, and it's just... Yeah, that's why I wouldn't say he's Randian. Yeah, he's got a certain amount of uh, how to motivate he looks. Them. He looks out for the common people in his kingdom and doesn't just let capitalism reign free. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. There's the, that certain sort of practicality. I, I, I guess on it. the surface <laughs> level, there are those elements, the Randian elements I mentioned, but you're right. He's not a full-out Randian character. Like, there are... He's too damn perfect, is the thing, is that he's so likable that he can't possibly make, like, a political error, and it's like, come on, he's a barbarian. But anyway, I suppose mm. that the, the sort of storyline is that he had been around enough to sort of pick up enough things about politics and social so social points to be able to it's uh, one of those, manage the it's position. One of those, oh, sorry, it's one of those weird elements of the character, too, where no matter who's in the room, like, doesn't matter who Conan's in the room with, he is the toughest, strongest, bravest, and most intelligent. I think, and it's Period. funny, is... Like, th- there is never anybody in the room who seems to be smarter than Conan. And the best part is that all those first adjectives are, like, the obvious ones, but no one expects him to be the smartest. And he just plays that to his advantage. 
as a character constantly. Well, it's one of those things, though, where I found that actually kind of broke my suspension of disbelief a little bit. Because there are things where no matter how intelligent a person is, someone else is going to be smarter than they are. Like, you can't always be the expert on everything. Mm-hmm. And you would think there'd be times when he would have to consult with somebody who knew just that little bit more about something. But no, it's just he always knows the most. The only time that ever comes up is when he's dealing with magic. Because mm-hmm. he don't like magic and he don't understand magic. <laughs> yeah, he's like, nope, not a thing. I'll just muscle my way through this. <laughs> and it's somehow, despite magic's so-called destructive potential, he always seems to manage to be able to do that. I think that's mainly because the villains end up screwing each other over. <laughs> yeah, because magic's always inherently evil in the universe in most yes. cases. So, In evil, the Conan stories, yeah. usually magic is something that's dangerous. You might not be evil, but mm-hmm. if you use magic, there's a very good chance it's going to corrupt you or cause you to go insane. Mm-hmm. I think the only time that I didn't see magic being really evil was in the Tower of the Elephant near the end, where it was just so clearly not something for people to use and was like an otherworldly thing. So, <laughs> Sorry, just an- another part. Because you mentioned how the villains are always scheming against each other. That was one thing I definitely noticed, is all the villains in the story are cowards and power-hungry. So they're always trying to one-up each other. I find that's actually the most compelling part of any Howard stories, usually the villains, because mm-hmm. they're always have their own motivations and are crossing each other and have their own factions and are, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I didn't say it their awfulness is always interesting we'll put it that way because it's always turned up to 11 <laughs> like they're always the most evil of evils yeah but yeah. they're evil in different ways and they conflict with each other because of those different aspects of their personality that's one thing he was very good at was yeah. putting together a good band of villains who were all in it for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> I guess another part before we leave off of discussing the characters here is that in later incarnations of this kind of character, usually you get the stoic, strong, silent type as a barbarian, mm-hmm. and Conan talks a lot. Constantly. Yeah, <laughs> Co- Co- Conan likes revelry. He doesn't... He doesn't just sit there stoically. It's like, where's the inn? Let's have a party. Give me beer or food and just yep. chat it up. Like, blah, blah, I think that's blah, part blah. of the reason people like him is because he's a party animal. Yep. It's, he, he doesn't stop. It's the sense that you get. <laughs> it was actually funny because... Um, Everyone I, else is hungover. Conan is still going. <laughs> as I was reading the story, because you showed me the movie a few years ago, I don't think they could have picked a worse casting choice, to be perfectly honest. Like, because... The way this character reads and the way Arnold Schwarzenegger plays him, they're not even close. I agree, yeah. yeah. Like, and it's just one of those things where it's like they literally picked the most muscle-bound guy they could find, but that's not Conan. Should they have they, picked they Dwayne cast the Rock him Johnson? physically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to work, yeah. <laughs> I they said... cast him physically, but yeah. not for the rest of the aspects of his yeah. character. Mm-hmm. Marie just made the joke, actually, that The Rock would be a good Conan. I think he kind of would. I think he would be the best Conan. Because, <laughs> Probably. Okay, he's he's got, a very pleasant person. He's got the physical look, but he actually has kind of the charismatic aspect of the character. He's hilarious. Because there's so many times where Conan just, like, 
is like helpless, helplessly laughing at like the situation. He's like, this is stupid. I'll go kill a bunch of people. Fine, whatever. But this is really dumb. <laughs> yeah. So now that you have a picture of how this character is supposed to look like in your head, yeah. which is Dwayne with hair. <laughs> Uh, and really blue eyes. That's the other bit. Yes, Just give him really blue eyes. blue eyes and the Prince Valiant sort of haircut and you're good. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to move into the world that this takes place in. It's got a great is our world. Many, many, between the years when the ocean sunk Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, yep. there was the Hyborian Age where the map looked very different from yep. how it looks now. Yep. And... Every every culture is at its peak adventure story <laughs> place in history. Yeah. So there are Kozaks, Co- there are ancient Greek armies, Conan yes. rules over Aquilonia, which is Normandy in the High Middle Ages. Yeah, there's a bunch of Picts who are sort of not really like Picts. They're more like... um. Native Americans yeah. <laughs> at this point in the uh, pretty much. <laughs> um, in Robert E. Howard's history of the world. Yeah. <laughs> Older Egyptians, as we established. Yeah, definitely Egyptians. Bunch of different sort of African nations. I'm surprised there were no Mongolians, or maybe there are. There are. You just haven't encountered them. There definitely yeah. are, and there's some kind of Eastern groups too. Yeah. Again, and most some, of whom I assume would be portrayed negatively. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Yep, medieval uh, India is thrown mm, in there in yeah. some stories. Yep. It's called the Time of High Adventure in the uh, mm-hmm. introductory blurb to the Phoenix and the Sword. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. Every culture is at this is where a 19th century adventure novel would be set. Yep. It's here. Yep. <laughs> it's at that point in the Hyborian Age, which means you get situations like a medieval army facing off with the Assyrians. Yeah, it's great. Story. <laughs> You're like, well, that couldn't have happened, so it's great that this is happening now. And because the Hour of the Dragon is the most geographically broad, you get the most sense of how disjointed this world really is because when you take each story individually Mm -hmm. it's emulating a specific kind of adventure story in a specific piece of history and howard will do some finagling to try and get a a context behind why this place exists in this world Mm -hmm. and it works within that one story because he's in one place yeah it doesn't move around as much (laughs) but once you have a globe-trotting adventure like the hour of the dragon you're like, we're spanning like 600 or yeah. 1100 years of history here. Yeah. <laughs> Once you get from one side of the globe to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's not quite as bad as like Robert Jordan's where you immediately cross a border and suddenly the clothing is different uh, kind of thing. There's a sort of a grady- gradient of change. And, like, various countries will sort of share some things in common and have some things different. Um, but, yeah, he that, that horse covers a lot of distance. And, uh, yeah. It's these two approaches to world building and fantasy. You have Tolkien's approach, 
which is I'm going to build the languages and ethnic makeup of this world and start from the beginning of time mm-hmm. and up to the point when this story takes place and then I'll write my story based on this big backlog of stuff and then you have the Robert E. Howard sword and sorcery approach to world building which is what cool stuff do I like from the history and anthropology <laughs> books that I read and how can I pull a explanation out of my butt for why this is in this world right now? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. So just suspend your disbelief and have a good time. Like, come on. Well, again, <laughs> it's it's very much the kind of story that expects you to just do that anyway. Mm-hmm. Like in TV I, tropes, they call it the rule of cool. And yeah. that's what rules the Hyborian Age. Yeah. Well, these are very much the kind of stories where when they were being written, the authors didn't intend them to be, in quotes, your literature. They intended them to be just kind of fun stories. They became literature later as people realized the influence they'd had. So then it's like, oh, maybe we should study these if they're that influential. Like, they're very much being produced by people who just wanted to have as much fun as their, their audience, basically. And the audience for this stuff is people with very tenuous employment living through the Great Depression who really need some kind of escape from their lives right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah, so perfect. <laughs> there are clear bad guys, there's a clear good guy, he gets through it. Yeah, and once you get into the long haul of the Hyborian Age is where that anthropological... Mm-hmm. stuff really comes to the fore because evolution it the understanding of evolution in Robert E. Howard and the early 1930s kind of popular conception yeah. of evolution means it doesn't take long yeah for... <laughs> and some people end up going back into apes some apes kind of become people with kind of yeah, yeah, there are ape people, there are lizard people, there are Victor- yeah. Victorian <laughs> notions. kinds of people, really. Yeah, yeah no, um, Victorian notions of evolution, which you can very much see at work here, are that evolution is not a one-way process. It's that if you can evolve, you can also regress. And but so- it's sort of along a line, is <laughs> the weird part of that. Yeah, you're moving along this one-dimensional path. Yeah. You can go backwards or forwards, but you can't really branch out unless you're like a winged dude. Unless you're like a person. winged dude. <laughs> That's very or technical. Or a giant <laughs> space elephant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Every now and then, there's a little bit of sci-fi in these stories, and that's the bit that I found the most jarring. It's every now and then, it's a fucking alien. You're like, what? (laughs) And a lot of the magic and occult elements are actually drawn from stuff that was popular in the 30s, namely Mm -hmm. Madame Blatavsky and Theosophy. Mm-hmm. This whole idea of cataclysms and Atlantis and Mu and Lemuria sinking and rising and sinking and rising and over and over again and continents becoming extremely different and there being several different intelligent races that inhabited the planet way mm-hmm. back when and all this evil magic comes from theosophy and other occult movements from the time period. Mm-hmm. I think the Theosophical Society still exists, but they're definitely not in the zeitgeist like they were back then. Mm-hmm. 
And you could you could blame a lot of the development of modern fantasy on that, because if you want to turn it away from blaming Robert E. Howard, <laughs> turn it away from blaming Robert E. Howard, a lot of the stuff that went into Theosophy informed the beginnings of fantasy fiction at that time. Mm-hmm. So I guess we should be thanking it then, because we all still like fantasy fiction. Yeah, we still like yeah. fantasy. We still like this weird stuff. <laughs> Yep, this bullshit. We even like the Lovecraftian elements in here. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I found um, Howard, there were a few parts in Arrow of the Dragon where things got a bit Lovecraftian, and he kind of did them better than Lovecraft. Just because well, he can write it's, better. So. It's a Lovecraftian universe, it's just that the characters have a very different reaction. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. the Lovecraftian horrors the Lovecraft's characters do. Instead of going, ah, they hit it with an axe in the face. <laughs> so Again, the entire time I'm reading Hour of the Dragon, you guys kept saying that. Axe to the face, axe to the face. Nobody actually took an axe to the face. Just about everywhere else except the face. <laughs> he did have a giant axe at one point, though. He did, but he chopped Disguised like guys... himself as a head chopper dude. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise known as an execution. <laughs> yes, but again, that's to the neck. That's not to the face specifically. And I was so looking forward to somebody getting axed in the face. Where are you? Yeah. Well, you so guys we made it a... seem like it was going to happen. So we have a Lovecraftian universe, but the fundamentally different idea of mankind's place in it. Yeah. So not so much with the existential dread here. Nope. So much as facing the horrors full on and fighting it to the end. Mm-hmm. Well, and being, not even that, being stronger than the horrors, too. Because mm-hmm. Conan is able to overcome them, or at least escape them. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to the philosophical core, if you can really call it that, of the <laughs> Conan stories, which is this idea of barbarism and civilization, which has had many. Uh, press association papers written on it. It's not that complex of an idea. Civilizations are going to fall. That's just how it works Mm. in Howard's universe. And there's an anarchic streak here because the, the, the way that the natural state of a person is in a barbaric kind of culture, and that's where you're going to have the most fulfilling sort of life. But we keep on getting just hammered down by the man, mm-hmm. and individualism getting squashed, and we're just not getting along with anyone in our small town in Texas. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so the solution is burn it all down, because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's going to happen eventually, and live your life as a free and independent being who... And if you can't to, answers if, to no god except a god that doesn't care. And if you can't do that, then let that man lead you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is why I referred to it as Randy and earlier. Except that it fundamentally rejects the system that yeah. the Randian I mean, if you consider objectivism Conan, kind of <laughs> if you consider Conan as the, the Leviathan, like his thing really works. <laughs> yeah, that works a bit yeah. better. Yeah, it's, it's a little more Hobbes than anything else. Part of this element of Conan's character that he's supposed to be offending 1930s sensibilities mm-hmm. and why it reads pretty different now than mm-hmm. it probably did back then. 
Yeah. Yeah. So there are aspects of that trying to stick it to the man and offending the masses and showing you what a real person is really like that doesn't age well. Maybe because some of that stuff has just been absorbed into mainstream society well, and mm-hmm. other things have just been rejected entirely where they might have been considered as something subversive part, or desirable part, back in the day. <laughs> part of it, too, is that it's kind of the inevitable inevitable path of the rebellion that it becomes the institution, right? So, I mean, so many of these kind of ideas are now so inundated into our culture, whether you agree with them or not, that they're not really offending. They're not really offensive because they're just so used to what you you see. It's like, well, yeah, of course he'd do that. I'm almost certain that Michael just said that. But anyway. (laughs) Yes, yes, and Conan himself travels across the world on his sandaled feet trampling yep. sorcerers and empires and becoming a quaffing. king of a feudal kingdom. And quaffing a lot. And basically yeah, I... being integrated into the system that he was fighting for or against in the previous stories that he was in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I gotta say, regardless of which character it's as, I don't think I'd want to live in this universe. Oh god, no, it's a terrible no place way. to live. I'd die immediately. Well, actually... I, I actually have a recourse in that that you have, because I could just put on a wisp of silk, follow around Conan, life would be not too too terrible. But it, it, it's, it's one of those things Eventually where... Eventually, someone will defeat him. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, as I'm reading it, along with suspension of disbelief, when sense, suspension of sensibilities. Like, I'm reading this, I'm like, okay, this is cool, I don't agree with it, but it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, no, don't want to be there. Conan can have the Hyborian Age, I don't want it. <laughs> Yeah, there's a rule of cool, but it's the rule of cool things happening to other people. Yep. If you think about it, even Middle-earth isn't that great of a place to be living at the time. A lot of fantasy worlds are fun to be in for the duration of a story, but not when you think about what the day-to-day life of a normal person would have been in a place Mm -hmm. like that. This is is kind of the downfall of fantasy worlds in general, is that they're fun for the protagonists, and they're fun for the reader because you're alongside the protagonist. But they're actually very horrible places. Like, the masses just exist as this faceless thing that are continually abused by the tides of fate. Like... Yeah, because there are how many tyrant kings and evil sorcerers and cult leaders are just like wandering in the, around. Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. in Robin Hood, Men in Tights, where they just burn down the peasant's village for the credit scene. <laughs> so true. Yeah, I guess that's part of... I like reading these stories. I can't really imagine myself as this character. There's just no way anybody could be this amazing. Nope. Uh, I can't really imagine myself as wanting to be the other characters in these nope. stories either. <laughs> I guess being the space elephant after he's freed would be pretty cool, but... <laughs> I'm not opposed to, like... I, I like the idea of the hero having kind of the strong, noble figure, something that can kind of be inspiring, but yeah, again, living in a hero's universe would suck. Mm-hmm. So we haven't really gotten into the plot of The Hour of the Dragon. I don't really think that's necessary. I don't think we need to. So Conan There's like, a sorcerer. A he gets people. resurrected at the beginning. Conan gets toppled from his throne. And he's going to go get it back. And 
It's a you MacGuffin. Discover his barbarian nature. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. I think that's all you the, need to know. Yeah, it's good for the kind of conversations we typically have about books. This is very much one where the plot is really the least important element. It's he goes gets the MacGuffin. That's yeah, it. it's <laughs> that's yeah. the only story element. Like, Lots of twists and turns of the MacGuffin getting whisked away before Conan can get there in time. Yeah, it's it's a stock yeah. it's a stock plot. You can see exactly the point where it's like, and I need to twist it to add a twist to create more words now. And yeah, it's like Yeah. And it, something weird will happen at some point, like a, there's a woman in a pyramid for some reason. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it's not the kind and of story. And we learn there's vampires in this universe. Yeah. It's like yeah. Yeah. It's not the kind of story you read for the originality of the plot. Um, I'd say there's certainly originality to the world, and there are some interesting, again, whether they were intentional or not, there are some interesting ideas and some interesting things to at least think about um, in terms of world building and, you know, characterization. But again, we've kind of covered that already. We yeah. kind of haven't talked about the main reason I think a lot of people still read these stories, which is the fight scenes. Oh yeah, really well choreographed. The action There's is a really big good. Part yeah. of that is just these fight scenes because Howard was an amateur boxer, and I think you can kind of tell. <laughs> so good. Now that you mention so that, yes, you can see the fight experience. There. Everything else is kind of PG thirteen. The fight scenes are definitely more like fourteen A. Yeah, brains spilling everywhere. Lots of brains. <laughs> Yeah. A good array of various weapons used in very creative ways. Yeah, never a dull moment. They're exciting action-adventure stories, and they are certainly fun in that regard. Yeah, and then mainly important, because this is just fun for the sake of it when you're reading Conan, at least, there's more mm -hmm. serious stuff that this guy wrote mm -hmm. with more things going on. But for Conan, it's mostly about fun. Mm -hmm. But why we would be talking about it now as a, the deeper meaning behind it is the influence, just how much uh, in the 1960s, every second book mm -hmm. basically was trying to emulate this formula, mm -hmm. trying to do sword and sorcery in the fantasy genre. Mm -hmm. And even though sword and sorcery isn't really a thing anymore as a mm -hmm. its own entity, except in video games where it very much is... Yeah. <laughs> it's something. Most fantasy video games are explicitly sword and sorcerer. Yeah. To a frightening uh, degree, I would think, yeah. Because it's yeah. the best protagonist driven style. <laughs> yeah. In anyway. novels, um, you can still see it. It's not specifically a sword and sorcery uh, adventure story, but that slightly gritty take on everything being awful and black sorcery and. Emphasis mm -hmm. on blood and brains everywhere that you would see in something like Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. You can trace it back to here. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is, as well as seeing how that's evolved, how people have taken it and gone from using it as just a, a fun adventure story to actually upping the stakes with this kind of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very easy to just invert a few elements of this, and it can be used to... There are ways that it's been used to address social ills, as, a, as just one example. Or, like, with Game of Thrones, you mentioned how they take all of these elements and they just update up the stakes by adding the intrigue, by adding more characters. And even though we've been talking about the distasteful elements here, I am going to mention... Charles Saunders as your alternative if you wanted to see a black Conan type character hmm. in Morrow. 
there's this kind of miniature movement in fantasy among black writers in North America that are writing sword and sorcery stories in this vein, but really turning the pyramid over, so to speak. <laughs> ah, cool. Well, there, um, I, I know that there are actually a lot of, and again, there's smaller movements just because of population dynamics, but there are a lot of movements among historically marginalized populations or the groups that would be marginalized by this type of story to, instead of completely reject it, to take it and to make it suit them, to make it suit their storytelling and to make themselves heroic. And I think it's, I think it's a very neat thing to see. And I think what I also like about it is a lot of those stories, those efforts are not just to make themselves heroic, but to do so without demonizing the population that originally would have been oppressing them. Mm-hmm. And sword and sorcery is maybe that is the enduring appeal of why this style that Howard started writing back then survives is its flexibility. It kind of is taking the old myths and heroic stories mm-hmm. and warming them over and presenting them to a modern audience again. And since every culture has its myths that fall into this sort of pattern, it, of course mm-hmm. it ends up adapting well. For mm-hmm. every culture that you can yep. <laughs> imagine yep. to tell these stories about these different peoples. Joseph Campbell, Hero of a Thousand Faces. Like, this is a hero's journey story. It, it's, like I said, it's a stock plot, but it's stock for a reason. I think yeah. we've covered over Robert E. Howard and Conan in particular fairly yeah. well here. Yeah, one, I mean, it's from one swooning fan to another. <laughs> recommendations with giant caveats. Yeah, just know what you're going to read a little bit before you get into it, and it's. I hate saying a product of the time because that sort of sounds like it gives permission. It's definitely informed by the sensibilities of the author. You can As say. we would say, it explains it; it does not excuse it. Yeah. There are things in here that are inexcusable. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're interested in the history of fantasy in particular, mm-hmm. I think you're kind of bound mm-hmm. to end up stumbling across these stories and reading them. If you're not, and this stuff does really stick in your throat when you read it, which it will for a lot of people, yeah, you can read this style of story from other authors mm-hmm. who don't have that because yeah. of the wide-ranging influence there. Yeah. Otherwise, just suspend your disbelief and have a good time. Because <laughs> it's a really good time. It makes you smile. Well, I think one thing we're kind of ignoring, too, is as it is a product of its time, it is also, I think, valuable valuable just as an artifact. Like, I, I think... We, we, you know, we, we talked about Howard being interested in anthropology. Well, I've always been... Fond of taking the approach of anthropology through literature. So instead of necessarily, or say instead of reading a book about the history of the 1930s, if you really want to get a sense of the mindset, read the writers from that time. Yeah, if you want to know what appealed to a working class person during the Great Depression who was into weird, slightly magical stories, you read this, this, you'll get a pretty good idea. Yep. Pulp Fiction was written for the audience, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That's what you're going to end up with. Um, um, favorite Conan story? 
Um, I'll probably have to go with Red Nails just because it has a somewhat useful female character. Also, that one on the shore, though. That one was kind of cool, too. I can't remember. Is it one with pirates in it? (laughs) Uh, There are pirates in it. Trying to remember which one it is. Having only read the one and having just found it kind of meh, I can't really comment on a favorite. I don't think that Marie was asking you. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I just wanted to belong. Uh, even though she did bring up Red Nails and we did miss the mm-hmm. fact that every early Dungeons and Dragons campaign and later ones mm-hmm. was trying to be these. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, again, another way these have made their way into pop culture is mm-hmm. this laid the groundwork for Dungeons oh, and Dragons. The Black Stranger. That's a good story, too. Sorry, it laid the groundwork for Dungeons and Dragons, which in turn laid the groundwork for every RPG, regardless of genre. Red Nails has a vast, almost abandoned underground city full Mm -hmm. of traps and creatures prowling the lower levels and Mm -hmm. factions of sorcerers and people who are fighting each other in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's got the altar, the sacrificial altar there. It's got every <laughs> everything for that you would associate with an old school Dungeons and Dragons campaign. <laughs> I'd say for me, I think Beyond the Black River is probably my mm-hmm. favorite story, which is the very explicitly the western. Yeah. <laughs> of the Conan stories. I like People of the Black Circle, even though I don't like the end of that because the sorcerers were Mm -hmm. a bit too easily (laughs) defeated by just leaving their stuff out for everybody to get at. I like A Witch Shall Be Born, where Conan's not even the main character. He's not really the main character in Beyond the Black River either. Mm -hmm. A Witch Shall Be Born is the one where he's crucified and totally just shakes it off. I remember that part of the movie. Yep. Yep. Yeah, all of those are pretty solid. Mm-hmm. That we've listed are pretty solid entry points to come in. <laughs> oh, yeah, and you can start with the Phoenix on the Sword. That's a pretty good start. Phoenix on the spot. Sword, I actually like by this axe I rule more, even though it's mm-hmm. not about Conan. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so. I, it, ha- it just happened to be the first one I read because the anthology I had started, it was an order of publication. So Yeah, there's a bunch of other stories that weren't published in his lifetime that you're better off skipping. <laughs> go Don't. Those. Uh, feminists, avoid the Frost Giant's daughter. Just don't. Oh my gosh. It's awful. <laughs> You'll be so <Yeah>. angry. <laughs> um, Shadows over Zambula. Don't read that. I just don't recommend anybody read that story. <laughs> Anyhow, if you want to read more about Conan, know that back in my teenage years, I posted a lot of stuff on the Robert E. Howard forums, which are gone now, and met some other bloggers who did the same thing, so I'm going to recommend Terranaic's blog, the blog that time forgot, for this kind of material, not just Howard, but just pulp fiction in general. You can find articles by me that I wrote a while back on my blog, onelastsketch.wordpress.com, where you can also find past episodes of this podcast. We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on Google Play Music, but my blog has written material too. So if you're into that, come visit. Where and some sketches. You guys. 
Uh, you can find me at iatropexy.wordpress.com. And I can be found at fromspeechfire.wordpress.com. Yeah, we're not nearly as into the technology as Michael. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, recommend it. We'll be back eventually. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Come here, cat. Come here, cat. Come here, cat. Cat. You're making noise. Come up here. Wait a second. There. Oh, shit. That is too far. Oh, no. What does he do to the call? <laughs> anyway. Uh, let me just... Okay. Carry on. Carry on.